what do we do with the empty tomb? That's our question this morning on Easter. What do we do with the empty tomb? The first thing we need to look at is what was the reaction to the empty tomb and the claims of the risen Jesus on that first Easter morning? Here's the reactions we get. The descriptions, if you read across not just Mark that we just had read, but the other Gospels, the reaction to the empty tomb was fear and trembling, astonishment and alarm, and utter joy. Now, if you think about something like the empty tomb or the resurrection of Jesus and you don't have such a feeling, you don't have astonishment or alarm, if you don't have that excitement and joy that they first had, it's probably because you actually haven't grasped the full depth of what happened on Easter morning, or you've never actually looked into it yourself. Here's the deal, we're modern people. We have very little that astonishes us, and we actually live with very little alarm, fear, or with very little utter joy. Kind of live in this middle ground where we can control everything. We're people with a lot of cynicism and stoicism about just about everything. When it comes to the empty tomb or the resurrection itself, we either reject the resurrection outright because, look, let's face it, dead people don't rise. Or we spiritualize it. We spiritualize the resurrection as a nice myth. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. It's inspiring. It's, it's like the way the flowers come out in the spring after a long dead winter. It's inspiring to us. It's like rebuilding after a fire. From the ashes, something gets built up. You know, the resurrection, there was a death, but then there's life. We all love this sort of feeling of hope. It's like losing in round one, one year, and coming back to win a national championship the next. Amazing miracles can happen, right? (laughs) We like to think about Easter in this spiritualized, mythical way as optimism, hope, new life, things that can give us hope when things are down in our life. But that's not the Christian claim at all. The Christian claim, we get it in verse 6, when the women come to the tomb and the messenger says to them, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. That means dead, dead. He has risen. He is not here. From the early centuries after the resurrection, people who disbelieved in it, Greek philosophers, those who opposed it, made the same arguments that are made today. Basically, it's one of two things. Either he was mostly dead, not dead dead, but after being flogged and crucified, he woke up, pushed away the stone that took multiple people to put in place, and walked around, and even though he died later, everyone claimed he was the risen son of God. Or, or his body was stolen by the disciples in the middle of the night, and they hid the body, but went around claiming that he was the son of God and died horrible deaths under that guise. The evidence on the other side is the evidence that supports the Christian claim that Jesus is actually risen. And at bare minimum, I would tell you this, if you approach it with as much openness as you can, there's at minimum credibility behind the claims of Easter. The way that you go about understanding historic reliability in the ancient centuries was the way that they did history different than the way we do history. 
Whether you're looking at Roman culture or Egyptian culture or Greek culture or a Christianity, it was an oral tradition culture where eyewitness accounts were the primary way that historians recorded their stories. Josephus or any of the Roman uh, historians used eyewitness account. And one of the ways that you validated credibility was by putting the names of side characters into a story. The Gospels are filled with such side characters. Joseph of Arimathea, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, Salome, these three women. You put the names of side characters in in an ancient history as a footnote. It was basically a way of saying, hey, I'm writing this story, this account of Jesus in 60 AD, and I'm going to give you the names of people that you can go check. In fact, some of you know them. You know Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. You know James and Joseph. It was their mother who saw this. That was the way of validating a credible history in the ancient world. What we know about the Caesars has as much credibility as we know. Actually, what you know about Jesus has more. It's that same idea of these footnotes. On top of that, one of the greatest arguments for the validity of at least the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection is the fact that in every account of the Gospels of the resurrection, the first people on the scene are women. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, Salome. It's women who are the first ones at the empty tomb. In Jewish courts in the first century, a woman's testimony was not valid. Josephus, the Jewish historian who stepped between the Roman and Jewish worlds, said it even more bluntly, you can't even take two or three women as eyewitnesses. They're not credible. Second century Greek philosopher Celsus, who wanted to discount Christianity, one of the main arguments against Christianity, he said was, and think about it, the first eyewitness was Mary Magdalene a hysterical woman, demon-possessed. Basically, if you are going to make up an account and you want people to believe it, Celsus' argument was Jesus, they should have had Jesus appearing to like Pontius Pilate, to the Pharisees and rabbis, at least to some credible men. Now to us, that's offensive, but think about how that has flipped for us. Actually, the presence of women very much accounts for the fact that this was not made up. You would not make it up if you wanted this to be believable. If they had, if the authors, Mark, Matthew, Luke, had any way to get around using Mary Magdalene and the others, they would have done so. The most plausible answer is, this is what these women actually saw and reported. An empty tomb and a risen Jesus. On top of that, we have the evidence of the followers of Jesus and what happened in the centuries after. On one level, we have this. Over the first three centuries, they lost the location of the tomb. That was an ancient culture where you venerated the dead. They knew where Abraham had, had dug a, um, a, a pit in order to have water. They knew, they knew where the water was that Abraham, they knew where Abraham had a field. And you're telling me the followers of Jesus who claimed he's the son of God couldn't find the tomb 100 years later? No, that's exactly right. It wasn't until the fourth century that the church later on was like, let's go try to find the tomb. You don't find a tomb if it doesn't matter, if there isn't a body in there. 
On top of that, it is the way that this, the early followers of Jesus quickly switched, basically within a few weeks, they switched from celebrating the Sabbath, the holiest day in a Jewish person's life, on a Saturday to moving it to the first day of the week on a Sunday. Something must have happened on that first day of the week after Jesus' crucifixion that caused them to flip their entire worldview and the way they had organized their entire week, their entire lives, so that they made the first day of the week the main day. Something happened that first Sunday. We also know this. History was littered with messiahs, Jewish messiahs, who were crucified or killed by sword, and all of their followers disbanded and nobody kept going. Judas the Galilean, 30 years before Jesus, gathered a bunch of people. They stormed Jerusalem. When he was killed, the following ended. Bar Kokhba, a hundred years after Jesus, not only did he come in as the Messiah, he established a reign. He kicked out the Romans, and for three years, he was ruling over a new kingdom in Israel. And then the Romans came in and killed him. His followers disbanded, and no one ever followed Bar Kokhba again. Something else happened with this crucified Messiah. The disciples, very faithful Jewish men and women, who were so faithful they were careful to utter the word Yahweh, they feared God Almighty, within a few years are claiming that this Jesus is not just risen, but is God Almighty. Something happened on that first day. These disciples moved from absolute terror and fear, hiding for their life, abandoning Jesus as he's being crucified, to, a few short weeks later, proclaiming in public and at risk of death that Jesus is risen and is the Son of God. And then they went to the ends of the earth, telling people, we saw Jesus risen, he is the Son of God. And all but one of them died horrific deaths under that guise or under the claim of what they actually saw. What I'm suggesting is this. I'm suggesting what a Japanese novelist, Shusaku Endu, says, which is this. If you don't believe the resurrection, you're forced to believe that what hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity, to transform collectively their entire approach to life and transform all, all of the world and world history. When it comes to the resurrection, I would say these two things. The Gospels make it clear that they are historically reliable accounts, as historically reliable as any ancient history that we have. And at bare minimum, the resurrection is intellectually, philosophically plausible. It makes sense of the evidence. Now, that doesn't mean you have to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Just don't disbelieve on the basis of weak evidence. Don't avoid the possibility that he could be risen simply because you don't like the implications if it's true. You know, I think a lot of us try to avoid the whole Jesus question in the same way that we would possibly avoid wanting to hear what a doctor had to say if we had symptoms of cancer. But think about the, the irrationality of this. If you have symptoms of cancer, you go to see the doctor, he says, oh, you need to see an oncologist. The oncologist says, oh, you need to get some scans. Would you then say, I actually don't want cancer to be true, so I will not get the scans? 
as if not getting the MRI or the PET scan is going to mean you won't have cancer. It just means you're avoiding hard truths. Don't you want to see if it is true? Maybe not. What do we do with Jesus is the big question on top of the empty tomb. It's interesting, the women who come to see Jesus that first Easter morning, their reactions to the empty tomb are they are alarmed and trembling, astonished and afraid. Why are they alarmed and trembling and astonished and afraid? Because when they get there and the tomb is empty, they realize something. They realize this means Jesus is not dead, which means he is not just a rabbi, a friend of theirs, a rabbi. In fact, he's not just the Messiah, the one who would come to make everything right, but something in what they were experiencing was that they realized this is God. This is the Lord of the universe who has broken open the gates of death. They're shaking in fear because Jesus is Lord. None of us, actually, at our root, really want the implications of the empty tomb to be true. If it's actually true, it's going to affect us. And we don't want that. So what we do, what most people do, is we downplay or dismiss Jesus on some level. We'll maybe admit he's a historic figure. That's what most people do. He's a historic figure, did some great things, taught a lot of good morals. He's a good teacher. If you want to follow a religious system, when somebody tells you about Jesus, you're like, hey, I am glad that works for you. But we approach Jesus like it's an opinion on a new restaurant. You know, people come in and they're like, oh, I kind of like that new restaurant. If somebody really likes the restaurant, they go tell everyone about it. And you go, all right, I'll try the new restaurant. Eh, wasn't really that exciting. Jesus is not a new restaurant. It's not a, a mere opinion about the way you flavor food or cook it. Nobody reacted to Jesus with mild excitement, like a new restaurant. They were either astonished or terrified. Look at the reactions in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus heals a man that is demon-possessed, and everyone, all are amazed. They say, what is this? What authority? Jesus heals a man who is paralyzed, and all are amazed, and they worshiped God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He heals a man on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees, who were the religious leader, the priests, the ministers, they gather together in council with the Herodians, their enemies, but also authorities in the land, on how to destroy Jesus. Jesus calms a storm, and the disciples, his followers who've been following him around, are filled with great fear. Who is this, they say? Don't you know? Haven't you been hanging out with him? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? He casts out a legion of demons from a man in a far-off land, and all the people, the Gentile peoples who saw it, were afraid and begged Jesus to depart from their land. Get away from here, Jesus. A woman who has been bleeding for 12 years is healed, and in fear and trembling, she falls down before Jesus. And the religious leaders in chapter 10 are seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. 
when a new restaurant comes in, we don't take up swords to destroy it. If we don't like it, we don't go there. You know, we have a tendency to have minimum of extremes when we are dealing with somebody, okay? What I mean is this. If you meet somebody new, here's in my vernacular with my friends, it, somebody new moves in and they say, oh, you should meet him, he's a good dude. Like, that's, that's high praise, good dude. Low praise is, he's a bit of a jerk. You avoid the jerks, you want to hang out with the good dudes, okay? Right in here. Good dude, jerk. Every reaction to Jesus is either kill him or worship him. Nobody who ever met Jesus came up to later and said, oh yeah, he's, he's a pretty cool dude. Yeah, you should meet him. I mean, if you don't, it's fine. They either drop everything and follow him or they figure out how they can eliminate this guy. C.S. Lewis put it so clearly, so we're gonna delve into what he wrote in Mere Christianity. Lewis wrote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. He goes on to say, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We must do something with this Jesus. I think every one of us is seeking something in life. At bare minimum, it is human nature to seek purpose and meaning. We want to be loved and we want to matter. If you don't have a sense of purpose or a sense that you're loved, you're in what's called depression. Depression is that state of feeling purposeless, meaningless in life. That's why we pursue things that give us purpose and meaning. And generally speaking, every human being seeks purpose and meaning in something or someone. We may not say it outright, but inside of us, it's something like this. If I have that, if I get there, if I have her, then my life will matter. Then I'll be somebody. The problem is, nothing we pursue Nothing we pursue is big enough to fill the void in our soul. If you seek purpose and meaning through adrenaline rush and experiences, you'll find pretty quickly, maybe not that quickly, maybe over the course of decades, that the pleasure of travel or of sex or the next big concert, it doesn't last. That all of your adrenaline rushes and experiences are fleeting, or you don't have enough of them in your life. You're always chasing better, more, greater pleasure, deeper experiences. If you seek your hope in a spouse, that spouse will suffocate under the weight of your expectations. No human being can fill the void in your soul. 
or they will disappoint you, or worse, betray you. And even if you have a fantastic spouse, they will eventually die. They will not last forever. Build your life on achievement and success, and either you will fail and fall short and hate yourself, or worse, you'll get what you wanted and be miserable because you realize it's not enough to fill the void in your soul. Back to C.S. Lewis, who in Mere Christianity said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. The Christian claim, the Easter claim, is the tomb is empty because Jesus is risen and he is Lord, and you can know him. And we find our purpose and our meaning in this Jesus, in knowing him as our Lord. The Bible uses two ways of talking about know. It's knowing and knowing are both used, but one of them is knowing facts, and the other is knowing experientially. Knowing intellectually versus knowing intimately. You can know about something or you can know it personally. So earlier this week, we saw the burning of Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. And I I know about Notre Dame. It's in Paris. It was begun about 1160 AD. It took decade upon decade to build. Some of the wood timbers that were used in there were from 300 or 400 year old oak trees. This Gothic architecture is just beautiful and and using all the, the greatest ways that they could build something in that medieval age. It is a symbol of Christian worship for centuries and of Western civilization. So I looked at the burning and was sad but I never have experienced Notre Dame. I've never been there. I've not walked in and been awed by the height, the beauty, the transcendence. I've never worshiped there. I have no relationship or experience of that place. I know it intellectually, but not intimately or experientially. I know two people for over 20 years, actually more than 25, I'll give you their nicknames, Bono and Toiny. So Bono, Bono is a musician, leads a band. Bono's about five foot seven, five six, maybe five four. His real name is Paul, his wife is Allie. He likes the Psalms, he cares deeply about Africa, and has been a, a rock musician for decades. I know Bono, but I don't know Bono. Toiny, on the other hand, I can tell you all about him, his height, his hair color, the, the types of clothes he wears, his musical interests, but I actually know him more personally than that. I know him because we've lived life together. We've raised kids together. I know about him in such a way that I can anticipate his humor in a situation. I can chuckle in advance at his competitiveness in certain situations. I know how he is going to be anxiously depressed in the midst of approaching, uh, like, we'll approach the same thing, like our favorite team, and I'll be excited about it, and he is pessimistically depressed. And I just know that about him. 
Not because I read it in a book, because I've experienced him for decades. You can know God intellectually, but he wants you to know him experientially. Look, there is a benefit to knowing God intellectually, through religious practice, showing up at church, studying things, reading theology, understanding things intellectually, dealing with the proofs of God. I love that sort of stuff. I have read tens of thousands of pages of academic works on theology, and I love it. It's a part of the depth of my understanding of God. But if that's all you have, you don't know God. You don't know God personally. You've never encountered the living God. You don't have a relationship with God, and he wants you to. Years ago, I entered into that daily relationship with Jesus Christ. I know him intellectually, but I follow him daily. It is not just my head, it is also my heart. It is intellectual rigor, but it's also my inner being connected to God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. So that Jesus Christ is the center of my purposes. Jesus Christ is where I find my meaning. Jesus Christ is the assurance that I am loved and my hope for the future. I have a relationship with Jesus such that Jesus matters to me more than my career, more than my spouse, more than my kids, more than my famed high school football career. It's not funny. When you know God more than intellectually, it changes your life. You are not an accident, and I don't believe you're here by accident. Will you consider Jesus? Augustine lived hundreds of years ago in his book, Confessions. He wrote about how he pursued success and status. He pursued philosophy and intellect. He pursued sex, seeking purpose and meaning in all of these things, his intellect, his career success, sexual exploits. And when he came to the end, he realized none of this could satisfy him because of this. He said, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. What are you seeking? Where are you looking for purpose and meaning? If you want rest for your soul, look in the empty tomb. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the empty tomb is a conundrum for us because we don't believe that dead people rise. Give us eyes to see if this is real and you are real. And give us the courage to approach it and to let you change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Here at Christ Church Vienna, we celebrate baptisms of children and adults, and today we're celebrating the baptism of two spiritual adults in Nina and Carson. This is an opportunity for them to declare their faith and to be brought into the family of God. Um, This is a way in which we, along with the church around the globe for centuries, have brought people into the faith publicly as they declare their faith, affirm it, and then we affirm it with them as we publicly affirm our faith. Um, So 
what we're going to start off with is just hearing from each of them. So, uh, Nina, I'm going to have you come up here to, uh, to this area. There we go. Um, and just talk to you a little bit. Uh, Nina, you're a ninth grader. Mm -hmm. um, you grew up in a Christian home, a church home. You told me, like, a couple of years you were pushing away from your faith or felt a little bit more distant. But over the past year or so, you've come closer to God. What has changed? What has happened? I think that what has changed is I've started reading my Bible more. And in my small group, we had this activity where we had a challenge to read our Bible for a certain number of days. And um, my team didn't win, but like, it started to get, to get me to read my Bible more, and I started to reflect more on what I was reading, and I started to believe. So as you were digging into the Bible yourself, the things became more real for you, I guess. Is that yeah. right? So give me just a summary. Tell me about your faith in Christ. Uh, I think my faith in Christ to me believes that uh, I believe in God, I am his, like I'm a child of God, basically. All right, well, Nina, we're going to baptize you in just a minute. Thank you for sharing with us about what God has done in your life. Carson. <laughs> brought his own cheering section. Yeah. I didn't have that cheering section. Uh, Carson, you're a senior. Um, you, over the past two years or so, have really come to faith in Christ without really growing up um, in the church yourself. Um, tell us a little bit about what's happened over the past two years in your life that has enabled you to go from not really showing up in a church to coming to faith in Christ yourself. Um, well, my junior year in the fall, I started going to like Young Life Club, and um, my friends got me to go to that, and that that kind of like grew my curiosity, the talks at the end, that definitely grew my curiosity, but I wasn't really paying like 100% attention, <laughs> but I was, I was listening, and over the months, my curiosity grew, and um, around in the, the following winter in February, I kind of like decided to dive more into it and uh, see more about what it's about, and that's kind of when it really started. Okay, so you, you kind of stepped in a little bit, but didn't fully buy in, and then over the past year, year and a half, you've really kind of pushed in further. What role have people around you, the things you've been involved in, whether it's Young Life or a small group or showing up at church, what role have those different things played in your faith? Uh, probably the, definitely the, one of the biggest roles. Like, these guys, um, they've, I wouldn't have come this far without them, definitely. They've provided so much support and so much, like, wisdom in my faith and um, understanding and just being there for me, that's... That's definitely encouraged me a lot to uh, grow more and seek more and ask more questions and just dive into it more, I guess. That's, uh, it's, there's a neat way in which people play a role in our lives and the people around you have been a part of supporting and building you up as well as helping you to grow. Tell us, lastly, if you were going to share one thing with us about your faith in Christ that you wanted us to know or about faith in Christ, what, what would it be? Um, what I would definitely say is that if this whole thing hasn't, like, spoken to you that much, what I would want everyone to know is that, like, it doesn't really, if you spend your entire life pushing away from God and kind of following your own will, that doesn't really matter. Or if you've, if you've known God and you still spend some time uh, pushing away from his will in your life, that doesn't affect it that much because he's never going to give up on us. He's always going to be there with his arms open to invite us back in, invite us back into a relationship with him. Because he just he just loves us that much. Thanks, Chris. Yeah.